Letter 116, Part 1 of Letters of John Keats to His Family and Friends. Edited by Sidney Colvin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. To George and Georgiana Keats. Winchester, September 17, 1819, Friday. My dear George, I was closely employed in reading and composition in this place, whither I had come from Shankland for the convenience of a library, when I received your last dated 24th July. You will have seen by the short letter I wrote from Shankland how matters stand between us and Mr. Jennings. They had not at all moved, and I knew no way of overcoming the inveterate obstinacy of our affairs. On receiving your last, I immediately took a place in the same night's coach for London. Mr. Abbey behaved extremely well to me, appointed Monday evening at seven to meet me, and observed that he should drink tea at that hour. I gave him the enclosed note and showed him the last leaf of yours to me. He really appeared anxious about it and promised he would forward your money as quickly as possible. I think I mentioned that Walton was dead he will apply to Mr. Glidden, the partner, endeavoring to get rid of Mrs. Jennings' claim and be expeditious. He has received an answer from my letter to Fry. That is something. We are certainly in a very low estate. I say we, for I am in such a situation that were it not for the assistance of Brown and Taylor, I must be as badly off as a man can be. I cannot raise any sum by the promise of any poem. No, not by the mortgage of my intellect. You must wait a little while. I really have hopes of success. I have finished a tragedy which, if it succeeds, will enable me to sell what I may have in manuscript to a good advantage. I have passed my time in reading, writing, and fretting. The last I intend to give up and stick to the other two. They are the only chances of benefit to us. Your wants will be a fresh spur to me, I assure you, you shall more than share what I can get whilst I am still young. The time may come when age will make me more selfish. I have not been well treated by the world, and yet I have capitally well. I do not know a person to whom so many purse-strings would fly open as to me, if I could possibly take advantage of them, which I cannot do, for none of the owners of these purses are rich. Your present situation I will not suffer myself to dwell upon. When misfortunes are so real, we are glad enough to escape them and the thought of them. I cannot help thinking Mr. Audubon a dishonest man. Why did he make you believe that he was a man of property? How is it that his circumstances have altered so suddenly? In truth, I do not believe you fit to deal with the world, or at least the American world. But good God, who can avoid these chances? You have done your best. Take matters as coolly as you can, and confidently expecting help from England, act as if no help were nigh. Mine, I am sure, is a tolerable tragedy. It would have been a bank to me, if just as I had finished it, I had not heard of Keene's resolution to go to America. That was the worst news I could have had. There is no actor can do the principal character besides Keene. At Covent Garden, there is a great chance of it being damned. Were it to succeed even there, it would lift me out of the mire. 
I mean the mire of a bad reputation, which is continually rising against me. My name with literary fashionables is vulgar. I am a weaver boy to them. A tragedy would lift me out of this mess, and mess it is as far as regards our pockets. But be not cast down any more than I am. I feel that I can bear real ills better than imaginary ones. Whenever I find myself growing vaporish, I rouse myself, wash and put on a clean shirt, brush my hair and clothes, tie my shoestrings neatly, and in fact, adonize as I were going out. Then all clean and comfortable, I sit down to write. This I find the greatest relief. Besides, I am becoming accustomed to the privations of the pleasures of sense. In the midst of the world, I live like a hermit. I forgot how to lay plans for the enjoyment of any pleasure I feel I can bear anything, any misery, even imprisonment. So long as I have neither wife nor child, perhaps you say yours are your only comfort. They must be. I returned to Winchester the day before yesterday, and am now here alone, for Brown, some days before I left, went to Bedhampton, and there he will be for the next fortnight. The term of his house will be up in the middle of next month, when we shall return to Hampstead. On Sunday, I dined with your mother and Hannah and Charles in Henrietta Street. Mr. and Mrs. Millar were in the country. Charles had been but a few days returned from Paris. I dare say you will have letters expressing the motives of his journey. Mrs. Wiley and Mrs. Waldegrave seem as quiet as the two mice there alone. I did not show your last. I thought it better not, for better times will certainly come, and why should they be unhappy in the meantime? On Monday morning I went to Walthamstow. Fanny looked better than I had seen her for some time. She complains of not hearing from you appealing to me as if it were half my fault. I'd been so long in retirement that London appeared a very odd place. I could not make out I had so many acquaintances, and it was a whole day before I could feel among men. I had another strange sensation. There was not one house I felt any pleasure to call at. Reynolds was in the country, and, saving himself, I am prejudiced against all that family. Dilk and his wife and child were in the country. Taylor was at Nottingham. I was out and everybody was out. I walked among the streets as in a strange land. Rice was the only one at home. I passed some time with him. I know him better since we have lived a month together in the Isle of Wight. He is the most sensible and even wise man I know. He has a few John Bull prejudices, but they improve him. His illness is at times alarming. We are great friends, and there is no one I like to pass a day with better. Martin called in to bid him goodbye before he sent out for Dublin. If you would like to hear one of his jokes, here is one which, at the time, we laughed at a good deal. A Miss Blank, with three young ladies, one of them Martin's sister, had come a-gadding in the Isle of Wight, and took for a few days a cottage opposite ours. We dined with them one day, and, as I was saying, they had fish. Miss Blank said she thought they tasted of the boat. No, says Martin very seriously, they haven't been kept long enough. I saw Haslam. He is very much occupied with love and business, being one of Mr. Saunders' executors, 
and lover to a young woman he showed me her picture by severn i think she is though not very cunning too cunning for him nothing strikes me so forcibly with a sense of the ridiculous as love a man in love i do think cuts the sorriest figure in the world queer when i know a poor fool to be really in pain about it i could burst out laughing in his face his pathetic visage becomes irresistible not that i take haslam as a pattern for lovers he is a very worthy man and a good friend his love is very amusing somewhere in the spectator is related an account of a man inviting a party of stutterers and squinters to his table it would please me more to scrape together a party of lovers not to dinner but to tea there would be no fighting as among knights of old pensive they sit and roll their languid eyes nibble their toast and cool their tea with sighs or else forget the purpose of the night forget their tea forget their appetite see with crossed arms they sit ah hapless crew the fire is going out and no one rings for coals and therefore no coals betty brings a fly is in the milk-pot must he die circled by a humane society no no there mr werder take his spoon inserts it dips the handle and lo soon the little straggler saved from perils dark across the tea-board draws a long wet mark romeo arise takes snuffers by the handle there's a large cauliflower in each candle a winding sheet ah me i must away to number seven just beyond the circus gay alas my friend your coat sits very well where may your tailor live i may not tell oh pardon me i'm absent now and then where might my tailor live i say again i cannot tell let me no more be teased he lives in wapping might live where he pleased you see i cannot get on without writing as boys do at school a few nonsense verses i begin them and before i have written six the whim has passed if there is anything deserving so respectable a name in them i shall put in a bit of information anywhere just as it strikes me mr abbey is to write to me as soon as he can bring matters to bear and then i am to go to town and tell him the means of forwarding to you through capper and hazelwood i wonder i did not put this before i shall go on to-morrow it is so fine now i must take a bit of a walk saturday september eighteen with my inconstant disposition it is no wonder that this morning amid all our bad times and misfortunes i should feel so alert and well-spirited at this moment you are perhaps in a very different state of mind it is because my hopes are of a paramount to my despair i have been reading over a part of a short poem i have composed lately called lamia and i am certain there is that sort of fire in it that must take hold of people some way give them either pleasant or unpleasant sensation what they want is a sensation of some sort I wish I could pitch the key of your spirits as high as mine is, but your organ loft is beyond the reach of my voice. I admire the exact admeasurement of my niece in your mother's letter. Oh, the little span-long elf! 
I'm not in the least a judge of the proper weight and size of an infant. Never trouble yourselves about that. She is sure to be a fine woman. Let her have only the delicate nails both on hands and feet, and both as small as a mayfly's, who will live you his life on a three-square inch of oak leaf, and nails she must have, quite different from the market woman here, who plough into butter and make a quarter-pound taste of it. I intend to write a letter to your wife, and there I may say more on this little plump subject. I hope she's plump, still harping on my daughter. This Winchester is a place tolerably well suited to me. There is a fine cathedral, a college, a Roman Catholic chapel, a Methodist D.O., an independent D.O., and there is not one loom or anything like a manufacturing beyond bread and butter in the whole city. There are a number of rich Catholics in the place. It is a respectable, ancient, aristocratic place, and moreover, it contains a nunnery. Our set are by no means so hail fellow well met on literary subjects as we are wont to be. Reynolds is turned to the law. By the by, he brought out a little piece of the Lyceum called 1234 by advertisement. It met with complete success. The meaning of this odd title is explained when I tell you the principal actor is a mimic, who takes off four of our best performers in the course of the farce. Our stage is loaded with mimics. I did not see the piece, being out of town the whole time it was in progress. Dilk is entirely swallowed up in his boy. It is really lamentable to what a pitch he carries a sort of parental mania. I had a letter from him at Shanklin. He went on a word or two about the Isle of Wight, which is a bit of a hobby horse of his, but he soon deviated to his boy. I am sitting, says he, at the window expecting my boy from, I suppose I told you somewhere that he lives in Westminster, and his boy goes to school there, where he gets beaten, and every bruise he has, and I dare say deserves, is very bitter to Dilk. The place I am speaking of puts me in mind to a circumstance which occurred lately at Dilk's, I think a very rich and dramatic and quite illustrative of the little quiet fun that he will enjoy sometimes. First, I must tell you that their house is at the corner of Great Smith Street, so that some of the windows look into one street and the back windows into another round the corner. Dilk had some old people to dinner. I know not who, but there were two old ladies among them. Brown was there. They had known him from a child. Brown is very pleasant with old women, and on that day it seems behaved himself so winningly that they became hand and glove together and a little complimentary. Brown was obliged to depart early. He bid them good-bye and passed into the passage. No sooner was his back turned than the old women began lauding him. When Brown had reached the street door and was just going, Dilk threw up the window and called, Brown, Brown! They say you look younger than ever you did. Brown went on, and had just turned the corner into the other street, when Dilk appeared at the back window, crying, Brown, Brown, by God, they say you're handsome. You see what a many words it requires to give any identity to a thing I could have told you in half a minute. I've been reading lately Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, and I think you'll be very much amused with a page I hear copy for you. I call it a faux de joie around the batteries of Fort St. Hyphen de Fraise on the birthday of the Degama. 
the whole alphabet was drawn up in a phalanx on the corner of an old dictionary band playing emo amas etc every lover admires his mistress though she be very deformed of herself ill-favoured wrinkled pimpled pale red yellow tanned tallow-faced have a swollen juggler's platter face or a thin lean chitty face have clouds in her face be crooked dry bald googly-eyed bleary-eyed or with staring eyes she looks like a squished cat hold her head still awry heavy dull hollow mouth persian hook-nose have a sharp joe's nose a red nose china flat great nose ner simo patuluk a nose like a promontory gubber-tushed rotten teeth black uneven brown teeth beetle-browed a witch's beard her breath stink all over the room her nose drop winter and summer with a bavarian poke under her chin a sharp chin laveared with a long crane's neck which stands awry too pendulous mammoths her dugs like two double jugs or else no dugs in the other extreme bloody fallen fingers she have filthy long unpaired nails scabbed hands a wrist a tanned skin a rotten carcass crooked back she stoops is lame splay-footed as slender in the middle as a cow in the waist gouty legs her ankles hang over her shoes her feet stink she breed lice a mere changeling a very monster an often perfect her whole complexion savors a harsh voice incondite gesture vile gait a vast virago or an ugly tit a slug a fat fustelugs a truss a long lean rawbone a skeleton a sneaker si qua latent milar puta and to thy judgment looks like a mard in a lanthorn whom thou couldst not fancy for a world but hatest loathest and wouldst have spit in her face or blow thy nose in her bosom or medium amoris to another man a dowdy a slut a scold a nasty rank rammy filthy beastly queen dishonest peradventure obscene base beggarly rude foolish untaught peevish iris's daughter thyrserite sister grobanian scholar if he love her once he admires her for all this he takes no notice of any such errors or imperfections of body or mind there is a dose for you fire i would give my favorite leg to have written this as a speech in a play with what effect could matthews popgun it at the pit this i think will amuse you more than so much poetry of that i do not like to copy any as i am afraid it is too mal a propos for you at the present and yet i will send you some for by the time you receive it things in england may have taken a different turn when i left mr abbey on monday evening i walked up cheapside but he returned put some letters in the post and met him again in bucklesbury we walked together through the poultry as far as the baker's shop he has some concern in he spoke of it in such a way to me i thought he wanted me to make an offer to assist him in it i do believe if i could be a hatter i might be one he seems anxious about me he began blowing up lord byron while i was sitting with him however maybe the fellow says true now and then in which he took up a magazine and read me some extracts from don juan lord byron's last flash poem particularly one against literary ambition 
I do think I must be well spoken of among sets, for Hodgkinson is more than polite, and the coffee German endeavoured to be very close to me the other night at Convent Garden, where I went at half price before I tumbled into bed. Everyone, however distant an acquaintance, behaves in the most conciliating manner to me. You will see I speak of this as a matter of interest. On the next sheet, I will give you a little politics. In every age, there has been in England for two or three centuries subjects of great popular interest on the carpet, so that however great the uproar, one can scarcely prophesy any material change in the government, for his loud disturbances have agitated the country many times. All civilized countries become gradually more enlightened, and there should be a continual change for the better. Look at this country at present, and remember it, when it was even thought impious to doubt the justice of a trial by combat. From that time there has been a gradual change. Three great changes have been in progress. First for the better, next for the worse, and a third for the better once more. The first was the gradual annihilation of the tyranny of the nobles, when kings found it in their interest to conciliate the common people, elevate them, and be just to them. Just when baronial power ceased and before standing armies were so dangerous, taxes were few, kings were lifted by the people over the heads of their nobles, and those people held a rod over kings. The change for the worse in Europe was again this, the obligation of kings to the multitude began to be forgotten. Custom had made noblemen the humble servants of kings, then kings turned to the nobles as the adorners of their power, the slaves of it, and from the people as creatures continually endeavoring to check them. Then in every kingdom there was a long struggle of kings to destroy all popular privileges. The English were the only people in Europe who made a grand kick at this. There were slaves to Henry the Eighth, but were freemen under William the Third at the time the French were abject slaves under Louis the Fourteenth. The example of England and the liberal writers of France and England sowed the seed of opposition to this tyranny, and it was swelling in the ground till it burst out in the French Revolution. That has had an unlucky termination. It put a stop to the rapid progress of free sentiments in England and gave our courts hopes of turning back to the despotism of the eighteenth century. They have made a handle of this event in every way to undermine our freedom. They spread a horrid superstition against all innovation and improvement. The present struggle in England of the people is to destroy this superstition. What has roused them to do it is their distresses. Perhaps, on this account, the present distresses of this nation are a fortunate thing, though so horrid in their experience. You will see, I mean, that the French Revolution put a temporary stop to this third change, the change for the better. Now it is in progress again, and I think it is an effectual one. This is no contest between Whig and Tory, but between right and wrong. There is scarcely a grain of party spirit now in England. Right and wrong considered by each man abstractedly is the fashion. I know very little of these things. I am convinced, however, that apparently small causes make great alterations. There are little signs whereby we may know how matters are going on. This makes the business of Carlyle, the bookseller, of great amount to my mind. He has been selling 
Thiastical Pamphlets, republished Tom Paine, and many other works held in superstitious horror. Even has been selling for some time immense numbers of a work called The Deist, which comes out in weekly numbers. For this conduct he, I think, has had about a dozen indictments issued against him, for which he has found bail to the amount of many thousand pounds. After all, they are afraid to prosecute. They are afraid of his defense. It would be published in all the papers all over the empire. They shudder at this. The trials would light a flame they could not extinguish. Do you not think this of great import? You will hear by the papers of the proceedings at Manchester and Hunt's triumphal entry into London. It would take me a whole day and a choir of paper to give you anything like detail. I will merely mention that it is calculated 30,000 people were in the streets waiting for him, the whole distance from the angel at Islington to the crown and anchor was lined with multitudes. As I passed Colnaghi's window, I saw a profile portrait of Sant, the destroyer of Kotzebue. His very look must interest everyone in his favor. I suppose they have represented him in his college dress. He seems to me like a young Abelard, a fine mouth, cheekbones, and this is no joke, full of sentiment, a fine, unvulgar nose, and plump temples. On looking over some letters, I found the one I wrote intended for you from the foot of Havelin to Liverpool. But you had sailed, and therefore it was returned to me. It contained, among other nonsense, an acrostic of my sister's name, and a pretty long name it is. I wrote it in a great hurry, which you will see. Indeed, I would not copy it if I thought it would ever be seen by any but yourselves. Give me your patience, sister, while I frame, exact in capitals your golden name, or sue the fair Apollo, and he will, rouse from his heavy slumber, and instill, great love in me for thee and poesy, imagine not the greatest mastery, in kingdom over all the realms of verse, nears more to heaven in aught than when we nurse, and surety give to love and brotherhood. Anthropopagi in Othello's mood, Ulysses stormed, and his enchanted belt, glowed with the muse, but they are never felt, unbosomed so, and so eternal made, such tender incense in their laurel shade, to all the recent sisters of the nine, is this poor offering to you, sister mine. Kind sister, I, this third name says you are, enchanted has it been the Lord knows where, and may its taste to you like good old wine take you to real happiness and give sons, daughters, and a home like honeyed hive. Foot of Helvellyn, June 27. I sent you in my first packet some of my Scotch letters. I find I have one kept back, which was written in the most interesting part of our tour, and will copy part of it in the hope you will not find it unamusing. I would give now anything for Richardson's power of making mountains of molehills. Incipit Epistola Caledonensia Duncan Cullen I did not know the day of the month, for I find I have not added it. Brown must have been asleep. Just after my last had gone to the post, before I go any further, 
I must premise that I would send the identical letter instead of taking the trouble to copy it. I do not do so, for it would spoil my notion of the neat manner in which I intended to fold these three genteel sheets. The original is written on coarse paper, and the soft one would ride in the postbag very uneasy. Perhaps there might be a quarrel. I ought to make a large question mark here, but I'd better take the opportunity of telling you I've got rid of my haunting sore throat, and conduct myself in a manner not to catch another. You speak of Lord Byron and me. There's this great difference between us. He describes what he sees. I describe what I imagine. Mine is the hardest task. Now see the immense difference. The Edinburgh reviewers are afraid to touch upon my poem. They do not know what to make of it. They do not like to condemn it, and they will not praise it for fear. They are as shy of it as I should be of wearing a Quaker's hat. The fact is, they have no real taste. They dare not compromise their judgments on so puzzling a question. If on my next publication they should praise me, and so lug in Endymion, I will address them in a manner they will not at all relish. The cowardliness of the Edinburgh is more than the abuse of the quarterly. End of letter 116, part 1